He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 24, 2024. How about those numbers? Two, two, four, two, four. My bar number, one, one, two, two, four. I have a great guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Amy Patton, almost sure to be the first and only Arapahoe County DA as they break away from uh, Douglas, Lincoln, and Elbert County Troubadour. Dave Gunders joins me. What a privilege and a pleasure on 224-24 show to talk to our Troubadour. Hey, Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. You supplied another great song this week. Thank you for that. Which one are we playing? Your way, too. Oh, okay. It's absolutely perfect for a wonderful guest, Amy Patton. She's important in your life. She's the chief law enforcement officer to be here in Arapahoe County. And so she's coming into office when? January, I do believe. Okay. She's going to be the DA. Oh. Arapahoe County has gotten so large that it's peeled away from Douglas, Lincoln, and Elbert. And the 18th Judicial District will remain in Arapahoe County. But Douglas, Elbert, and Lincoln, they are forming the 23rd Judicial District. And that's the way it works in my business. Every part of the state is a district. Denver is its own district. Thus, I was in the Denver DA's office. But now there will be an Arapahoe County DA's office just for Arapahoe County. First time ever. And Amy Patton doesn't have any real competition, not on the Democratic primary. And John Kellner, the incumbent, he just dropped out on the Republican side because Arapahoe County uh, defeated him by 15 points against Amy last time. He won because of Douglas, Lincoln, and Elburn. Oh, so who's taking his place as a as the Republican? They nom- haven't really nominated anybody. They don't really think they have a better candidate. They probably will and make a contest. But right. once they hear Amy on my podcast, huh. I don't think there will be a lot of hope because she's good. And your song is perfect. You know why? Because it honors a strong woman. It does that. Yes, but the thing that I love, your opening line, loved you from the start. I think about law. I've always loved the practice of law ever since I've been a lawyer and I started as a prosecutor. Look what I brought out, my old batch, 16 years in the Denver DA's office. Mm-hmm. It's encased in glass now, but I brought it home Is that from bullet- the office. Looks like bulletproof glass. Yes, so that I can't put it in my wallet anymore to try to get into things. (laughs) Or impress the girls. Well, there was that time in my life. But now it's Amy Patton's time, and she's going to be the DA, and she's really strong and experienced, and 
she has a passion for the law, but what I love about your song and what we talk about is the need to listen to other people. I get hired by a client who is in trouble with the law, and if you don't have a deputy who will even give you an audience, yeah. that's frustrating. Maybe you can see it my way, or maybe I'll give you something to think about you never did before. And Amy's the kind of prosecutor who welcomes that, and we talked about that, and it's beautiful because... If you open your mind, you just might learn something. And what do you call it in the song? A tug of war, right? It can be a tug of war. Or like a dance. Do the dance. See where you end up. And you've got control of your own where you're going to end up. And maybe if you open your ears, and she suggested this, because now it's been reported that there are major differences in the way men and women think about things. Like, duh. Right. <laughs> and one thing she postulated is that women listen better. Um, it's possible. Although one thing I want to say before we leave that subject, I've always thought you're a very good listener. I mean, I, I, know, I noticed that about you when you were back, when you had your show, your radio show on KNUS. Right, I'm listening for a chance to be a smart aleck. No, right. No, you listen and you consider. And, I do. Yeah. That's what I think is part of being a good interviewer. But as a prosecutor, I had countless times where people approached me, defense attorneys in court. They've got a little pitch. You know, it's going to take two or three or five minutes of my time. And I'm going to give them the courtesy of a listen. And I'm not going to be distracted. They're working hard. This big moment for them. And I always thought, well, maybe I'll be doing that someday. But regardless, it's a fellow lawyer. I'm going to give them the courtesy of a good lesson. And a good lesson is, is when you're listening without um, your own thoughts already coming into play is how, how you're going to defend or disagree, right? It's being actually open to what they're saying. Right, without the final offer already being written on your file. What do you mean? Right. I haven't even talked to you yet. I don't mind right. you looking at the file first, but the final part should be, okay, let's hear if there's another part of this story. So, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't, but that's what I love about your song because I think that the narrator kind of realizes, hey, there is another way to look at things. Right, yeah. And then you bring in horns. What's up with that? I had that line, you know, and I thought it would be really nice um, if, if the horns played it. So um, that worked out well. As a matter of fact, I saw those guys, the, the horn players on, on that song, last night up in uh, Louisville. Um, the band is called Funk Knuff. And uh, if you, it's spelled F-U-N-K and then K-N-U-F. Funk enough. It's kind of a clever name. But anyway, they're in a big, like a, like a nine-piece horn band up there. I, I went to see them. Uh, I know a bunch of people in that band. So, yeah, it was those same horn players. Oh, man, is it good. And we're going to let everybody hear, but I can't let the horn section go without mentioning Bonnie Willis. And I doubt you've heard the latest on her. That's correct. Okay, I talked about her last week, and I was dubious whether she did the right thing taking the stand and 
There was a lot of talk about, well, when would he have been in your house? Well, he came over with some papers, some nights, this, and they both were kind of vague, but I think there's evidence of booty calls now. And do you know what a booty call is? <laughs> um, is that when you call someone for um, a little, like a, a quickie? I think it means that you come over for uh, an encounter maybe in the middle of the night. Or the and day. then you leave. Right. Like the wee hours of the morning. You, right. It's not that normal to be out and about in a residential neighborhood if you don't live there, right? Right. And somehow they have Nathan Wade going to, in the wee hours of the morning to Bonnie Willis' house long before the relationship allegedly took place, according to their sworn testimony. And that could be the big problem. Why are we even hearing about it? Because once you take the stand, and this is that perjury column I just wrote, you're supposed to tell the truth, and if you're the prosecutor, even if it's a subject that some people think doesn't even matter, like Cash Patel lying about the insurrection at the Denver trial. Okay, well, we all know he's a liar. Or what. And so you could say, why do you even care? Because she's the damn prosecutor on the case. And she lied because she doesn't want it known that she hired a guy because he was her lover, or she, he, he already or that, was. Or that there was the appearance of her hiring. Um, right, because for that then it, because it becomes a financial interest. It, well, even then, they could potentially survive it, and they are still going to fight back and say, that the cell phone evidence doesn't mean much, but just think about that, that there's the technology to track where you were all over the metro Denver area on your job, right? I like like what she said uh, when she first, you know, um, stood, you know, her ground. She said, I'm not the one on trial. (laughs) And she's she's not, but But here she is, though. Once you make a statement under oath, that statement's under trial. Right, right, understood. It's a big mess. It's too bad. And it's Michigan. Have you been listening to Trump this week? Yeah, I heard him I heard him going on about uh you know about the fine and the judge, uh, you know, his his right. his fine. Um and some woman he doesn't even know he won't say Eugene Carroll anymore. But Nikki Haley gave a great speech. She's coming to Denver, wings over the Rockies on Tuesday the twenty seventh. I plan to be there, and I think I'm going to vote for her in the Republican primary. It's not affiliated. I can do that, and I want to stop Trump. And I'm doing it because I don't really care for her anymore. But she gave a great speech this week that I'm playing at the end of the show because I thought it was so powerful in the way she took on bullies. And she named Trump and Putin, and I am... I am willing to wager you $20 that she never endorses Trump. Okay? All right, but I don't know if I know enough to make that wager. I mean, I can afford I know, it. but that's something. All they like to right. Be- you know, well, talk they're... shit, and then the next day, oh, oh I'm voting for Trump. Right. You know, and Tim's got... But I, I think it's gone to the point, and I think she said enough in these words. Let's hope so. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? She well, brings yeah. whatever constituency she's going to bring to Joe Biden. I, I know, think. but you think about all the people who who've had words 
uh, I know, but I think that's came, came around and ultimately I be wrong. showed fealty to him, right? I, I think a lot of people would say, geez, I'll take that $20, but you don't want to take it. Right. You uh, just don't it's like It's not my bet. No, no, but I hope you're right. But here's what I'm, here's my question. So, so you're going to use your primary um, vote yes. for the Republican yes. um, nominee, yes. which means you give up your Democrat, your vote for the right. Democrat. But Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, despite the conspiracy theorist, Michelle Obama, or somebody's going to step in. I think that that's nutty. Dan Kaplis keeps talking about it all the time. And I'll be the monkey if that turns out to be true, but he acts like... Uh, you know, Michelle Obama or somebody's going to come in. And uh, I don't think so. I don't see it. I think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. And if it comes down to Joe versus Nikki Haley, I mean, Nikki makes a great point about Joe being too old, Trump too old. And uh, she's on top of her game, whatever her game is, but it includes really a bunch of horrible policies like this abortion shit where you don't even have IVF in Alabama anymore. Right. And uh, Roe v. Wade, gone, Dobbs, run amok. What's now, Nikki Haley's? What's her position on, on She is that? so pro-life yeah. that it's it's disturbing and makes me uh, kind of vote for Joe Biden in November over right. Nikki Haley. Right. But at least she's normal, okay? okay. I think you okay. can be pro-life and normal, right? right? No, I agree. Yep. But you can't be... Maga and normal. And I think she's come around to that. So I like her and I love your song. Your way too. Thanks. By Dave Gunders. Thanks, glad, Troubadour. I'm glad you like it. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
Toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead, who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, this is a treat to welcome Amy Patton, who I think is going to be the Arapahoe County DA. 
She's been on my show before, the radio version, but welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thanks for having me, Craig. It's good to be here. Well, we had a chance to visit, and I know a little bit about the process, but not like you. Tell everybody about your aspirations to be a Arapahoe County DA. Great. So I'm currently running to be the district attorney for the 18th Judicial District, technically. As you remember, I ran about four years ago. I lost in a very close race. What do you mean? You won. I was there <laughs> election night. Victory. I, I won Arapahoe County, but there were three other counties in our district last time. So we had Douglas Lincoln and Elbert counties as well, and I did not win those counties. Right, but isn't it the rule that when you go to bed, that's all that counts? <laughs> right. I, I think I was winning for about the first week. It wasn't oh. until some votes in Douglas County came in. Right. You know, I think over the weekend, right after election day, that our incumbent pulled ahead of me, but I was I was winning in the beginning. And then imagine this, you honored the will of the people and you said, I'm going to try again, only try to do better next time. Yeah. And the other thing that I have going in my advantage is that we the, re, the district has been redistricted. So in this election cycle, the 18th Judicial District is all of and only Arapahoe County. So Douglas Lincoln and Elbert will be a different judicial district. They'll be the 23rd Judicial District. Can I beg to differ, even though I expect you to be the DA, because I met you before, mm -hmm. and I think you're new and improved. There's <laughs> something about you, and with four more years of wisdom, mm -hmm. being in this position, watching developments, and you're young. I, I see people as young, so I don't you think four years of maturation has helped? Oh, I think it's helped a lot. I've gotten a lot of different experience in those four years. I've had a lot more time to talk to voters and people in my community. I've stayed very involved in the Democratic Party and in Aurora, where I live. And, you know, I think I that's definitely shaped my view of things, shaped my vision of the office. And um, I think I'm going to put my best foot forward and be the next DA. And here's why I think you're going to win this tournament. Because you are the only one entered. <laughs> that is true. Currently, yeah. I am the only one uh, running. The incumbent announced about uh, two weeks ago that he was not going to run for re-election. Re and so right now, I am the only candidate in this race. Because you beat him by, what, 15 points in Arapahoe last go-round? That's right. The incumbent lives in Arapahoe, so he would need to run in Arapahoe in the new 18th. And I did win that by 15 points last time around. But he couldn't move. He, right. he could have moved, but he is to not. To Douglas moving. County. Yes. Who's going to run there? So uh, there are two people running there. Uh, Mr. Brockler's running, and then um, another woman who I'm not familiar with. Her name is Dagna. Do you say Mr. just to avoid a profanity? No. It's, <laughs> uh, George Brockler. And he's yes. taken over, and he's kind of the mentor of John Kellner, as pointed out on my podcast, A Time or a Three. And... Uh, John Kellner is an okay prosecutor, but I think you're going to be better. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Okay. Let's talk about you. Mm -hmm. I want to get to know the Arapahoe County DA. Tell everybody where you grew up and how you ended up in Colorado. Yeah. So I was actually born in the Naval Hospital in South Carolina. My dad was in the Marines. He was in the JAG Corps during Vietnam. And then we moved back to his hometown, Erie, Pennsylvania, to Northwest Pennsylvania. And that's, so that's where I grew up. That's where I went to uh, grade school and high school. I actually spent a couple of years of high school over in Ohio, right across the border. 
I'm the oldest of four kids. Did you go to Erie High? Well, there is no Erie. There's several high schools in Erie. I went to McDowell High School for my first year of high school, and then I went to a school in Ohio for my last three years. But isn't it cool just to like have a hat that says Erie on it? <laughs> yes. Do you have paraphernalia like that? <laughs> what about your dad? Let's not go past him so fast. Jag, Vietnam era, is he still with us? He is still with us, yes. He'll be 83 in May. And how did he become a lawyer? What was his inspiration? You know, he... um. I, I'm not 100% was sure he the why he decided. Was he the first lawyer in the family? He was the first lawyer in the family, yes. Mm-hmm. He went to Georgetown undergrad. He went to Georgetown Law School. He went straight through, went into the JAG Corps, and then he came back to Erie and did kind of a mix of initially insurance defense work. Then he did plaintiff's medical malpractice cases, um, all, all sorts of things like that. And what about him now, watching his daughter do what you're doing? Yeah, He's really excited. He actually uh, was out here. He came out for my my kickoff. We were about to go on a vacation together. And I said, Dad, why don't you come out a day early and come to my kickoff that we had at the Holins house in Aurora. So he was there. And he was. it was really great. He was really just delighted to see everything. Phil Weiser and Jenna Griswold came to my kickoff. So he got to meet them. And he, I mean, he was really tickled, to be honest, to see all these you know prominent players in Colorado politics. At all, my these, all these frequent guests in Craig's Lawyer's Clown. Yes. <laughs> Jenna was on like my fourth show, maybe Phil on my sixth. I'm proud of those guys. That's quite an endorsement for you to get. And did your dad realize what big uh, mockers, that's Yiddish for, you know, important people they are? Yes. Yes, he did. So being a lawyer himself, he, he understood that. So Nice. And does he get agitated by current events? I can only imagine my late father, who was an attorney, Mm -hmm. and his father, who I didn't get to know while he passed away when I was young, but he was a Denver attorney. And I just think what we're going through right now, I wonder what my dad would think, but your dad's around. What does he think? Yeah. You know, I think he tries not to think about it a whole lot Mm -hmm. because- there's just so many things going on. And uh, my parents were Republicans, but they, they were Ronald Reagan Republicans. You know, they believed in equality. They believed in, you know, gay rights and the right to choose. And I don't think they really recognize what the Republican Party has turned into these days. Right. And I think a lot of people have turned it off. But right. it, as you well know, Colorado DAs are elected with presidential cycles. And right. it's a partisan race, except when I ran as an unaffiliated independent, and I proved that that wasn't a winning way to go against Bill Ritter, an incumbent Democrat in Denver, but it was a hell of a ride. And now to see you ascend, I mean, it's not just any job. It's Arapahoe County. It's where I think uh, the best, and I I don't want to say it's the best because I'm here, but yeah, I'm here now. I'm here, and my law practice is here in Arapahoe County, in the best state in Colorado. And this is the first time that Arapahoe County has been a standalone judicial district. So the person who first occupies that job of really being the Arapahoe County DA is going to be you. That's historic, right? I think so, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's really, it's time for Arapahoe County to have its own district attorney. You know, the 18th Judicial District, as it's currently configured with all four counties, is the biggest judicial district in the state. 
And to be frank, Arapahoe County has very different values than those other three counties do. And I think we deserve to be have a DA that represents us. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Right. If you would have said that to me 15 years ago, I would have said, what are you talking about? Right. But I know it's true. You know, 15 years ago, I or maybe more, Carol Chambers, Leslie Hansen ran the 18th Judicial District, sometimes called Arapahoe County DA. And I knew those two. And I still do. So you won't be the first female uh, in Arapahoe County, but you're the first everything for the standalone Arapahoe County. Let's just talk about the district because people might be listening, I hope, all over. And they wonder, well, why is he getting so excited? I mean, what what gets you excited about Arapahoe County? I get very excited about Aurora, where I live. Aurora is such a diverse community. Uh, We have such great food. We have um, all sorts of ethnic groups. And it's just really exciting to be in Aurora. And then, you know, sometimes it's challenging to be in Aurora. You know, we city council does a lot of things that I don't agree with. We have issues with Aurora Police Department that need to be addressed. So Aurora really excites me. But look at Arapahoe County itself is so diverse. We have Aurora. We have where we are now. We have all of Centennial. We have Sheridan. Uh, we go out to the Eastern Plains. So um, it's a really diverse district, a really in a big county, both population-wise and geographically. Right. And then uh, Rappo County and Adams County are divided by a little street called Colfax. Correct. Colfax Avenue. And uh, that's right through the heart of Denver. And then as you come east, it's the world's longest commercial street. I've done episodes on Colfax. And you get the wild side of Colfax. In fact, my first civil lawsuit after being a DA was against the nuisance properties, the motels, and just various criminality that was going on on that border with Aurora. It was both sides of that border. Yosemite is the border there. And then Colfax is the dividing line. So no county is as diverse. Will any county be as big as Rappo County? Do you know? Yeah, I, I, Arapahoe County is not the biggest county in the state, and I, to be honest, I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, population-wise, it's got to be close. It's it's close, but I don't think I don't think we're the biggest population-wise. Right, but I see it as a really kind of a bully pulpit, not a pulpit, but just a podium for you to help lead state policies when it comes to some big issues, right? Yes. I think that's critically important to, you know, be testifying at the legislature in support of new laws that are important to the DA or reforming existing laws and things like that. All right, let's go back because I know you understand all the judicial districts in Colorado. When last we left you, you were in Erie and your dad was a lawyer and you decided at what age, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer too. You know, I actually didn't really decide until I got into law school. So I uh, I went to William & Mary um, in Virginia for undergraduate, and I started out as a physics major, and I ended up as a chemistry major with a physics minor. And I was actually deciding between going to get a PhD and going to law school. So I applied to like four or five different PhD programs of four or five different law schools, and I applied to Georgetown kind of as my, as my reach to, for law school. And then I got in and I wasn't really expecting to get in. And so I was like, well, I got to go now. <laughs> I felt like this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, you know, I figured if I didn't like it, I could go back and, you know, get my PhD later or do something else. And so, but I ended up loving it. And I really felt like my scientific background 
really was a plus going to law school because as a scientist, you think of things very analytically and equations, and it really helped me with my reasoning skills um, and also just brought, you know, a different diversity, you know, as opposed to someone with a political science major, things like that. You know, a lot of times I would think about a problem in a different way. So right. Very, very and to, as I tell my son, Sam, who I'm encouraging, maybe I'll go to law school, you learn the rules of life. Right? right, the rules that govern us all. It's like learning the rules of baseball or a mm -hmm. video game. These are the rules that really matter. And then in law school, you learn how they became rules and how we enforce the rules, all of that. Was that the science part you liked, the elements adding up? Yeah, that was the science part I liked in law school. And then when I became a lawyer, I think a lot of law students or people looking to go to law school don't realize how much science is used in legal practice and in the courtroom. You know, if you do a medical malpractice case or you have DNA evidence in a criminal trial, as the attorney that's presenting these experts at the trial or in a deposition or whatever, I mean, you really need to dig in and learn the science. And so I always kind of gravitated towards things that had a more technical bent to them um, when I was a lawyer. And since you had such great experience, it means you really liked Washington. That's got to be exciting. Do you live right in the heart of town or do all the, is there student housing or how does that work? So there is student housing then. I think it was built the third year I was there. So we didn't have it when I first started. So I actually lived in Virginia. You know, I'd just gone to undergrad in Virginia. So I lived in the Arlington area, mm -hmm. kind of up and down the orange line. So Clarendon, Roslyn, Boston, all those. So they were pretty close to um, the city, but not in the city it, itself. And, um, one thing about Georgetown, a lot of people don't know, is the law school is actually down by the Capitol. It's not in Georgetown, in that part of the city. And so I went there in the early 90s. And to be honest, that wasn't the safest. It wasn't very safe at all. I mean, I had friends mm -hmm. who got mugged walking to class in the middle of the afternoon. And so, you know, I felt much safer living over in Virginia. And then I would just commute in to go to class every day. Right. It was the crack epidemic. I was a prosecutor here in Denver. We had the summer of violence, 1993. They still talk about that. So uh, we knew it was bad on uh, the East Coast as well. Yes. But uh, still, you said you had a great experience. And the Capitol endures. Let's hope it keeps enduring. But did you go in there much? I've had a couple of magical days in there. What about you? Yeah, you know, I went in there a few times. I didn't go as much as I thought I would being right there, but I, I did go a few times. And so, and it's just, I mean, I would go out sometimes and go for a run or a walk if I had a break during class and you're right there at the mall. So it's just, a, it's just, a, it's a beautiful city and I love living there, but um, definitely the Denver metro area is my home. Okay. Now. How did that happen? So I... I stayed for a few years after law school. I clerked for two judges, including um, Judge Harold Green on the Federal District Court, who you may have heard of. He's a pretty famous judge. He um, He's known for breaking up the AT&T monopoly and actually helped work on that case. So that was like an amazing experience to be a law clerk in Federal District Court in D.C. because, you know, I remember looking out the window. I'm like, here comes Hillary Clinton to testify, you know, because <laughs> there was a grand jury going on. Um, and so what's going on there now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was a really amazing experience. I stayed there for a few years. And then with my first husband, we decided 
we didn't want to be in DC anymore. And so we just started applying for jobs. He got a job out here um, in Denver and we just, we picked up and moved. I moved out here without a job. Was actually. he a lawyer too? Yes, he was. Okay. Well, most lawyers aren't meant to marry other lawyers. <laughs> Did you get remarried to another lawyer? <laughs> I got remarried, but not to another lawyer. See, that's smart. Yes. <laughs> that's somebody who learns. It's yeah. just like how you lost the last uh, election just by a little. Hey, that first marriage was okay, but, you know, number two is better, right? Exactly. How long has that been going on? Uh, we've been married for it'll be coming up on 12 years. Oh, so yeah. it's just for convenience to run for office then, right, for 12 years. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. That's nice. And uh, is he supportive of your campaign? Because that's important. Yes, yes, it is. It's a very important. You know, he's in real estate and he works for himself, so that makes it nice. He's got some, you know, extra free time. He works out of the house. Um, and so he's been very, very supportive, um, especially, you know, over the past few years, I've kind of been, you know, I went back up to the mountains to Heidi McCollum, the DA, wanted, really wanted me to come back um, and be a felony prosecutor up okay, there. Okay, let's talk about your travels. Your first okay. husband brings you out here and... He was a nice guy, and he brought you to Colorado, right? Yep. So that's a blessing. Yeah. And tell us about all the jobs you've had. Yeah, so in Colorado, I first went to Wheeler Trigg O'Donnell, which was then Wheeler Trigg and Kennedy. It's a great local firm. I was the 18th lawyer. They had just started in like February of 98, and I started in September of 98. On 17th Street? Uh, yeah, we were in the 1801 California building oh, okay. when we first started. All right. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so I made partner there after a couple of years. I had, again, had great experience there, but I was traveling a lot. You know, in public service had always really been my calling. So I left the partnership. I went to the, the Colorado Attorney General's office, and I was the consumer protection prosecutor. Now, how long at Wheeler Trade? I was there for a total of seven years. And you made partner? Yes. And then you were traveling around the country for big clients? Yes. And they pay you to travel around the country like that? They did. That? So then you made enough money to get into public service. That's true. <laughs> I did. I got all my loans, my student loans paid off. So that was nice. good. <laughs> nice. Yes. Okay. So then talk about public service. Yeah. So I was in the Colorado Attorney General's office for close to two years. And then I was hired to Who go- Who was your boss there? Uh, Maria Birkenkotter, who's on the Supreme Court. Okay. Yeah. So John Souther was the attorney right. general, and Maria was my uh, my first sure. assistant. Now you're just name dropping. Yes. <laughs> no, it, she was great to work for. I, I still keep in touch with her. I Jesus. have a lot of respect for John Souther. He's yes. been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Yes. I thought he was a great AG. Um, I really, I have a lot of respect for him El as well. El Paso DA. Yes. All of that. All yes. of that. Head of DOC. A normal Republican. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Got to get them back on. Those yes. are hard to find these days. They are. I know. All right. I so know. let's keep going. And um, how was uh, Judge Birkenkotter? I mean, she's on the Supreme Court. Let's not give her a short shrift, mm -hmm. even though I preferred the majority opinion in that recent case. She did not join, but she had a reason. She wrote about it. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I thought she she was a great boss, and I think she's doing a great job as a judge. She was a judge in Boulder in the district court for a while before she got appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court. She was my uh, boss there, and then um, I was actually hired by Troy Eide, another uh, Republican. Yes. Who also, I think, is a, a great guy and a good Republican. Former U.S. attorney. Correct. So he was a U.S. attorney, um, and he hired me to come over to the U.S. attorney's office, which, uh, frankly, had been a dream job, something I was trying to do for a long time. So um, I was delighted to do that. 
And so I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office for 10 and a half years. So um, I was there. You had to know a lot of the same people with the yes. Denver DA pedigree, Jim Allison, Jim Brenda Allison. Taylor. Yeah, Dave Tim Connor. Yeah, Dave Connor. Yep. Tim Knapp, Tim my Neff. basketball teammate. I mean, he was superb basketball player. Yes, yes. We're, we're leaving out others, but... Yes, a lot of Denver DA alumni came yes. over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so I was there for 10 and a half years. Um, actually started in the civil division there. John Walsh's wife was my boss. And then when John Walsh became the U.S. Attorney... What's his wife's name again? Lisa Christian. Okay, Lisa. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so when John Walsh became the U.S. attorney, Lisa had to leave because she couldn't be reporting to her husband. Um, and then John put me on um, his leadership team and made me a deputy chief. And so um, that was great. I'd actually met John when he ran for DA 20 years ago, and we kind of kept in touch. And I was really honored to be on his leadership team. I served on his team for um, six years uh, the whole time he was there. And then as he was leaving and Bob Troyer was taking over as the uh, acting U.S. attorney, they promoted me to be the executive assistant U.S. attorney, which is kind of like an equivalent of an assistant district attorney in wow. the DA's office. So like the third, the third yes. in command. So, and so I did that for probably a little over a year, and then Trump got elected, and I had never really had a strong desire to go into politics. I wasn't really, I wasn't involved in politics at all at that point because of the Hatch Act. I really couldn't be right. And I just, you know, I was so frustrated with those election results and so frustrated that, you know, we had a real opportunity to have a woman as president and that was taken away. And I wanted to see more women in politics and I wanted to see good people in politics. And I said, you know, what, why don't I do it? And it seemed kind of crazy at the time, but it was probably the best decision I've ever made. So I, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office and I decided to run for attorney general. I got into that race late. I was the fifth candidate in that Democratic primary. Right. Um, and ultimately- So that's 2018. Yes, 2018 yes. to 2019. And it was a great experience. It was a, Remind me of all the candidates. Didn't Joe yeah. Salazar- Joe run? Salazar was in it. Uh, Phil Weiser, obviously, who won. Uh, Michael Doherty and Brad Levine. Oh, yeah. So Right. And I think we, we had you on the air then. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So- that was quite, and it was a good testing ground for Phil. How do you think Phil is doing? I think Phil's doing great. Um, and Phil will say this, that he appreciated having that primary because it made us all better candidates. Like every time we would go to a forum, we would learn different things from each other. We would become better candidates. Um, and so when I decided to drop out because I really wanted to make sure the Democrats won that seat, I felt Phil was the strongest candidate. I felt he was going to do the best job. And so I got 100% behind him and really worked hard to make sure that Why, he was what the next did you fear? <laughs> I feared a, a certain person might get elected um, as Attorney George General. George Brockler. George Brockler. And I was on 710 Can You Ask the Saturday before the Tuesday election day. And he was bitching about Donald Trump dragging him down, which was true. It was true. And yeah. he knew he could get a sympathetic shoulder from me because I couldn't stand Trump at that point. After Charlottesville, I said, what the fuck? And I was done with him. And I should have been done with him long before I apologized for not backing Hillary Clinton. And I thought she and Bill were a little too corrupt. And you know what? Maybe still, but it's like apples to watermelons or dump trucks, whatever. It's not an apt comparison. 
and she's still coherent. She's, you know, women age better. Have you noticed that? I have noticed that. <laughs> that is 100% true. <laughs> and, and women are probably better at leading people than men have proven to be. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that as well. Why? I mean, I saw some drudge headline that they've identified how men and women are different. Yeah, duh, but right. what do you think? <laughs> you know, I feel like women do um, a better job of listening uh, for the most part and a better job of collaborating. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times, what, some of what I'm seeing lately, in particular with the Republican Party, is there's just a lot of anger and hate coming from particularly the men in that party. And I think women, you know, we all have maternal instincts. They're part of our bio biology that we don't bring that type of hate for the most part. I mean, it's, I think it's rare to see that in a woman and women are, I think more nurturing and more collaborative. And I think that makes them better leaders at the end of the day. Yeah, I think there's something that triggers them. For the life of me, Republicans who I respect, like George Brockler, who had a radio microphone for a long time until he wisely surrendered it because he kept saying stupid things, and I'd point him out on Twitter. But why the hell won't they back Nikki Haley over this career criminal and sex offender Trump? Well, what's their problem with her? Other yeah. than she's female and she's not white and she wasn't born a Christian. I mean, her policies are right there with them. Yeah, I don't understand it either. I mean, she's head and shoulders above Donald Trump, for sure. Right. <laughs> uh, and it, it doesn't make any sense to me. But Well, she talked about a good old boy club. You yes. know, when Tim Scott, God, I, that guy debases himself every time he talks we're getting off on national politics, but I think it's kind of apropos of females being leaders. Right. And and Nikki Haley just gave a hell of a speech that I'm playing for my audience because she stood up to bullies. And honest to God, I did the DA job for 16 years. I'm so proud of it. And a big part of it was standing up to bullies, the worst criminals. And in Arapahoe County, sadly, with the population, you get horrible crimes here. You don't have to make up crimes because there are horrible things happening and, and that's the truth. And are you going to be toughing up on crime? Are you going to keep Arapahoe County safe? How are you going to do it? Yes, I am going to be tough enough on crime and keep Arapahoe County safe. That's my primary objective as DA. That's the job is to keep our community safe. And so that involves being tough on violent criminals, but it also involves preventing crime in the first place. And I think that's one thing as prosecutors, we're evolving in how we approach um, the criminal justice system. But I think it's key where we have people that are interacting with the criminal justice system for the first time. And they're a low level offender. They don't have any prior criminal history. They didn't commit a violent crime we need to do a better job of saying, what caused this person to go astray? Why did they commit this crime in the first place? And is it something that can be fixed? So do they have a mental health problem? Do they have a substance abuse problem? You know, did they just lose their job? Um, did they get kicked out of their home and they're living on the streets? Like, what can we do to address that underlying problem? Because that way, hopefully we can prevent that person from reoffending. Because if we don't prevent them from reoffending, if we say, like they want to do in the city of Aurora, that everyone who shoplifts $100 or more goes to jail for three days. 
Well, what if that causes someone to lose their job? And then then what's going to happen? That person's not going to be rehabilitated. They're going to go out and reoffend. And that's not making our community safer. And will there be a spot for the guy who's pulled the gun on somebody? Now in Denver, and you know, Bill Ritter and I didn't argue about this much. And I think you see behind me the special session of 93. We brought James Brady to town. And Bill Ritter and I, we ended up disagreeing about a lot of things, but we were both for common sense gun control. And the way we manifested that through Dale Tooley and Norm Early and then eventually Bill Ritter, who I worked for, if somebody used a gun in a crime, we used that mandatory sentence law. And if somebody shot somebody, we said, whoa, you know, all that good stuff about rehabilitation and we'd like to figure out what's going on. You can't use guns. Is that going to be your message? No, I 100% agree with that. My husband's a hunter. We have guns in the home. He's a responsible gun owner. We need responsible gun owners. That's a key part of our, our way of life here in Colorado. But on the if you use a gun to hurt somebody, yeah, you need to go to prison. I mean, that's end of the story. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we need to be doing as prosecutors to take, you know, illegal weapons off our street, like ghost guns and, and other things, and to really target those people. I think at the end of the day, we're going to see that, you know, it, it's a small percentage of people causing a lot of these violent crimes, you know, and a lot of them are gang related or drug dealing related um, and things like that. And we really need to target those and get, get those violent offenders off the streets and get the guns out of their hands. Right. And career criminals and their criminal rings, that's really important for you to disrupt. What can you tell the public about your capacity to lead the kind of undercover operations? You're going to be the chief law enforcement officer. Somebody's, you know, ripping off trucks or ripping off catalytic converters or vehicles, motor vehicle theft. There are rings. Why would you be the best to stop that? Yeah, I, I think because I have the right leadership skill to like pull teams together and do things like this. I, I'll, just as an example, when I was working up in the 5th Judicial District, I was in Eagle County and we only had two felony prosecutors up there. It's a pretty small, um, it's a pretty small office. But there's a lot of drugs being trafficked down the I-70 corridor, mm-hmm. a lot. And when I first started, a big load that the guys would pick up on the highway in interdiction would be like, 10 pounds. By the time I left two, almost three years later, it was 50 pounds. They were pulling over loads of 50 pounds of guns and they were doing, they were going undercover. They were working with CIs. They were doing other things, working with intelligence, um, working with, you know, the DEA, working with um, folks in the front range. Because, you know, what, frankly, I didn't really appreciate until I started working up there is those drugs that are moving down I-70, if nobody gets them on I-70, they're coming. They're coming here to Aurora. They're coming to Denver. Maybe they're going further east. Um, a lot of times it's fentanyl, but we're seeing a huge surge in cocaine and heroin and meth has made a comeback. And these drugs are being moved by organized crime. They're being moved up through Mexico to California or to Phoenix and then down I-70 and to Denver, metro area, Aurora, or even further east. And so a lot of it is just having experience working with a bunch of different law enforcement agencies, which I have 
from my time up in the mountains, also from my time at the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, and being able to develop really good relationships with law enforcement, while at the same time holding them, them accountable. You know, if they do something wrong, you hold them accountable. And so, you know, I think just bringing that kind of um, mentality that, hey, we're all on the same team, we all have the same goal, and we need to work together to make sure that we're doing the best job that we can to make our community safe. Here's what I'm thinking about. That first Colorado DA's council meeting with you and Brockler, and maybe it'll be Leora Joseph, who is my guest, maybe John Walsh, but just the new powerful DA is coming in. But I think you might be able to unite around that common objective to keep the transportation of dangerous weapons, dangerous drugs off all the locations in Colorado and where you have an advantage. I mean, George did work in Jeffco for a long time, but you've worked outside the metro area. Where all have you worked? And don't you think that's an advantage? I do think that's an advantage um, in a couple ways. One, particularly in addressing this crisis, you know, I have a very good relationship with Heidi McCollum, who's a DA in the 5th Judicial District in the mountains. She's running for election. She's not opposed in her primary right now. And so she's probably going to be there for another four years, which would be great. Um, and so she covers uh, Eagle, Leadville, or Lake Counties, uh, Summit, and Clear Creek Counties. And so when I worked with her, I worked both in the Eagle County's office and then also I was the only uh, felony prosecutor, in fact, the only prosecutor for a few months in the Lake County office. And so lots of different experience there working with different law enforcement agencies and getting to develop new relationships and things like that. Um, I also worked down in the 11th Judicial District in Canyon City as a deputy DA, a felony prosecutor, uh, when my friend Caitlin Turner was the DA down there. So she unfortunately lost her job when Linda Stanley won. So I worked in that office. And then you know, we could, we're kind of skipping around, but also I went back to the uh, Colorado Attorney General's office after I ran for AG and worked there for about another nine months before I went up to the the mountains. I've been up the mountains twice. All right, let's so. talk about current events. Did yes. you see that report on Linda Stanley on Nine News? I do believe <laughs> I have. I didn't see that specific report, but I'm generally familiar about what's been going on. Because when you spoke about Eagle County, I went up there to cover the Kobe Bryant case mm -hmm. as part of the media. And it was cool because I was getting paid by Channel 7 and KOA. And oh my God, it was Kobe Bryant. And I was in the courtroom and the prosecutor was a guy named Mark Hurlburt, mm -hmm. right? Right. And I studied that case. And a guy he brought in to help cross-examine the witness was George Brockler, who's bragged about that on my show, maybe episode 63, but he's been on my show a lot. And I thought that was bad what they did to Kobe Bryant because I don't think he was credibly accused of sexual assault. And eventually the case got dismissed. And then the poor late Kobe Bryant got pursued by Lynn Wood, of all people, on behalf of that uh, woman from Eagle County. We don't need to talk about her. But then Mark Hurlburn went to George Brockler, right? And he was second in command for George Brockler in the 18th Judicial District. And uh, I thought, wow, I don't know. I didn't like his decision-making and Kobe Bryant. But then he went, when Linda Stanley took over in Salida and then Fremont County, that judicial district, she had the Barry Morphew case, accused of killing Suzanne Morphew on 
Mother's Day, a lot of credible evidence. I don't know if he did it or not, but I know that Linda Stanley hired Mark Hurlburt, who somehow they missed deadlines, they screwed up this or that, but now it's worse that they conspired against a judge there who wasn't ruling that way, and they got incriminating statements or texts from Mark Hurlburt and Bob Weiner, who was respected in Jefferson County back in the day, and I'm thinking, Mark Hurlburt, Mark Hurlburt, as you're drawing your little map of where you went at a different time, do you know Mark Hurlburt? Because I don't really know him, but I've been around these cases of his. Yeah, I just, I've met him socially before I was even working in the DA's office, so I, I know him. I do, I've never worked with him. Anyway, Bruce Brown, I remember when he came to Colorado, good guy, and he's been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Wow, uh, I just think it's going to be interesting because all of Colorado law enforcement should work together. That's the beauty of when I used to work. We didn't care about Republicans, Democrats, and all of that. Maybe we made fun of Alex Hunter for never going to trial in Boulder, but that's been remedied. There are good DAs all over the place of all political persuasions, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Do you want to be a leader of the CDAA? <laughs> I don't know about that. I want to get in and do the job. I got to be focused on Arapahoe County to start, but I'm looking forward to working with the other DAs. We were so CDAA. arrogant back in the day in Denver. We said, we're not going to be part of that group. We're going to have our own retreats, stuff like that. I don't know what that's like these days, but I do know uh, that there's one. Well, we're, well, let's just get to you politically. Or maybe not. While we're on current events, have you seen the latest on Bonnie Willis? I actually have not. Please don't ever testify like she did the other day. It might be good in the moment. Right. I have but not watched that. somehow they've gotten cell phone records of her love interest, Nathan Wade, and it all becomes an issue of when he was in an area and the fact that somebody can get that information well, let me break off there. Since you're going to be the Arapahoe County DA, technology is unbelievable. Yes. A lot of people worry about a surveillance society, like I bet Nathan Wade right now. What? They can take my cell phone data and get in and I'm not charged with anything? What's going on there? Does it worry you as a public official? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's always a tension between privacy and like legitimate law enforcement interests and things like that. And, you know, I think we're going to be relying on courts, obviously, to review warrants and tell us if we've got probable cause or we don't. You know, I think we're, I know at least when I was still up in the fifth, we were seeing pushback from, you know, Google that they weren't going to comply with certain warrants because they thought they were overbroad and they were going to litigate them. So I don't, it's, you know, it's constantly changing. I don't fully understand personally all the technology about, you know, geofences and all that sort of thing, but that's something that people are going to need to dig in and learn. And I think we're going to have to have expertise in every office about people that can, you know, figure out these warrants and go get these warrants and, you know, what's too broad, what's permissible, what complies with the fourth amendment um, and, and move forward under those um, circumstances. You are running for this powerful job during, I think, the most consequential year in human history. And on top of all of our politics, there's artificial intelligence, right? Climate change, stuff like that. But AI for a minute, I don't know what 
you do if you're the boss in the DA's office? Do you put it through an AI filter before you give a closing argument? Is it irresponsible not to do it to a robot focus group? I mean, how far do you push these things? Uh, and, you know, we all see now when we start writing, it finishes our sentences, should have finished our opening statements. I, I just don't know where this ends. Yeah. I don't think it should have any part in opening statements or closing. I mean, I, I, there are certain things that I don't think AI will ever achieve but may, in my lifetime, but maybe they will. I don't know. But there is so much, as you know, there's so much. It's called a practice of law for a reason because it, it it's practice. And you are a phenomenally better lawyer after you've been practicing for 15 years as opposed to after, after you've been practicing for five and you keep getting better. And, you know, talking to juries, only a person can do that. I don't think we will ever see a day where a robot is giving a closing argument. And so I think it's important to moot your closing argument to colleagues and to non-lawyer colleagues, to staff in the office. Um, but what but, if they don't have time? What well, if you're working remotely? No, I, I yes. agree with you. I want it to be a human experience. And I right. tell my boy, and one thing they can't replace is a trial lawyer, right? It's a uniquely human endeavor. You have to be fast on your feet, this and that. But is it a human endeavor anymore? And this is where I'm going to petition you as the, I think, going to be the DA. Mm -hmm. Can we have some human contact as lawyers? Can I talk to your deputy DAs? Can it not be like talking to a robot on the phone? <laughs> yes, and I encourage that. You know, and one thing I noticed, you know, practicing during COVID, it wasn't practicing law. And trying to do a docket by WebEx was you couldn't get anything done because you know this better than anybody, but when you're, you know, you're doing a felony docket, you're in the hallway talking to the defense attorney Correct. and then you're running back over to the office to write up a plea agreement if you can, you know, get it together so you can do it then so you don't have to push it out another six weeks. And, you know, you're talking to your victims and they're there in court. So if something comes up in court, you can turn around and say, Your Honor, can I go talk to the victim and get their position on this right then and there rather than, OK, well, we're going to have to continue this and reset it again. And, you know, just trying to get things done in the age of WebEx and all remote appearance and not being able to do any trials, it was just, it was so incredibly frustrating because I just felt like we couldn't accomplish anything and you weren't developing relationships. Like you, you have to have relationships with defense attorneys. Yes. Um, you know, to be able to to plea bargain with them and and hear them out. I mean, and I, I knew the defense attorneys who were straight shooters with me and they were gonna tell me like, you know, this case is nonsense. You're gonna lose this case because of X, Y, and Z. And I go dig a little further and talk to some more witnesses. I said, you know what, they're right. Um, but I know because of the relationships I have with them that I can trust their assessment. And I might, maybe I don't agree with it. Maybe I go talk to a witness X, Y, and Z. I'm saying, no, I'm going to trial because I think I think we can prove this case. I think your client's guilty. But you know, we just lose that interaction. You know, and I mean, we began to even lose it with email. You know, when I first, you know, when I was in AUSA, a lot of times the um, judges would say, you have to confer about a motion. Um, and that doesn't mean sending an email. Sending an email is not conferring. You need to have a conversation with people. And I think we've gone away with that be with between technology and unfortunately COVID of having conversations with people. And we need to do more of that. Gosh. You talked about how females were better listeners, and you used the magic words, 
hear them out. I get so frustrated because I do have some experience. I want to be a straight shooter. I want to look a prosecutor in the eye and explain, this is what I think's going on. And I want that courtesy. But you can't get that so often. Here's an offer on the pile before you even get to talk to them. Now, how about hearing them out? Someday, you might not be a deputy DA. You're going to be a lawyer trying to advocate for a client. Wouldn't you like to be heard out? Isn't that what lawyers do with fellow lawyers? Isn't that just common decency? Yeah, and that's exactly what we should be doing because most cases plea out at the end of the day. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes the charges are wrong. Sometimes, you know, I get a case and maybe I charged it or maybe a colleague charged it and I look at it, I'm like, I, don't, I can't prove this class five felony. I can prove a, a, an M1, I can pro- prove a first class misdemeanor, but I can't prove this. And so, you know, I think there needs to be um, flexibility and that's something I definitely wanna do. It's been, I think, I'm coming with, from a unique perspective because over the past, you know, essentially five years, I've been a line WDDA. I haven't been nice. in a management position. So I went from management back to being a line. And that was kind of refreshing in a lot of ways because I didn't have to deal with a lot of the challenges of management. But I also know what it's like to be managed. And I know, like, you know, I want to have autonomy over some of these cases and also have, you know, I know things have to be run by a supervisor and we want to be sure that, you know, some DAs aren't being too harsh and others are being too lenient and then we have some sort of consistency across DAs. But I also want to be sure the supervisor are listening when that DA comes and says, this, this is a bad case. Like we should dismiss right? or we should offer a misdemeanor or we should offer yes. a diversion. Um, and so I think that's critically important to that the, the deputy DA who's working the case has a say in what the outcome of the case should right. be. Uh, be alert for the innocent person, of course, but right. also for the guilty. There's a certain song and dance. No, I'm an opera class four. No, I need a misdemeanor. No, okay, maybe class five. All right, how about this? How about, you know, whatever, at least there's conversation. Let's right. go back and forth. There's a human connection. And the the client wants you to fight for them. And if the other side won't even let you talk, it's pretty darn frustrating. Right. And so your office will issue that because increasingly we run into that, right? You probably heard about those offices, but you you never did that as a line prosecutor. You And the thing is, in that song and dance, you're really leading, right? I mean, you're the prosecutor. You have the power. Why not let the other party, you know, show you a few moves? You can go that way or not, but just, hey. It's professionalism. Right, right. And that, I mean, that's the way the system should work. (laughs) And I do worry that we've gotten more adversarial and that there's less of that trying to figure out what the right result is in this specific case rather than trying to figure out what the harshest plea, plea deal is that the prosecutor can get. All right. I've been trying to figure out my professionalism in the era of Trump. Because I think lawyers have a special responsibility to speak out because our Constitution is at play, deprivation of civil rights, women's rights, voting rights, uh, just a complete disrespect for the rule of law. When I hear a lawyer say, oh, that's a New York City verdict, who cares about a jury there? I think there is an end of America if you start taking that attitude 
That's kind of the raison d'etre for this show. And I worry that it's invading our criminal justice system. And do you agree with my premise that lawyers have a special responsibility now? I do, um, because the system has to work. I mean, if people start doubting that our criminal justice system, that it it doesn't work at all, that's when we're going to see even more lawlessness or more things like January 6th. I think when people attack the integrity of the system rather than just disagree with the result, that's when I get really concerned. Um, and you know, Oh, that's just an Arapahoe County jury. Those people come from Aurora. You can't trust that. Do you believe that? I mean, no. I mean, it, who, it's who a talks jury. that way? Yeah, it's a jury of your peers. It's, you know, it. That's where the case was heard. That's what the jury decided. You have to, re- even if you disagree with the jury verdict, you need to respect it. Yeah, God forbid it invaded invades the justice system. It does, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really offended. IBF being suspended now. And back when I ran against Bill Ritter, who was pro-life, and I was pro-choice. So I always said, look, you can't, on some issues, I'm to the right of him, on others to the left. And people say, well, how is that an issue? I said, well, there were bubble laws back then. Diana, to get it, put them in all these protests. The DAs needed to enforce, but now it's gotten larger than that. Someday, you know, prosecutors will be asked to enforce abortion laws against God knows who, against IBF facilities. What's your take on all of this as a female leader? I have been pro-choice since I even understood what it was. When, you know, back in um, college, I'm sorry, back in law school, um, I went to Georgetown. It was a a Catholic university. Yes. We weren't allowed to have a pro-choice group there. There was a pro-life student group, but we weren't allowed to have a pro-choice student group. So during the um, National Organization of Women's March on Washington, I organized a group of law students. I'm like, we're going to go down and march. We made our own banner that said Georgetown Law, (laughs) Students for Choice. (laughs) We were kind of renegade. But um, we did that because it's critically important. I mean, the right to control a woman's body has so many, so many implications about um, equality and fairness and uh, everything else. And so that's just a core. And it's, it's used as a, a tool of control to take away a woman's right to choose. It's used as a tool of control. And so, you know, but the, uh, these things aren't really hypothetical even right now. I, I mean, right now, somebody, some prosecutor in Texas could try to charge someone who provided an abortion to a Texas resident, you know, someone who flew up here, had right. abortion, flew back. They could try to charge them under Texas law. They could try to extradite them. Well, because the DA has to decide whether they're going to sign off on any extradition. Yes. I'm 100% never going to sign off on an extradition warrant. Right. Um, but, you know, it is just astonishing to me that we are where we are post-Dodds. I never thought we would revert back this far on women's rights. Well, I mean, I, I, look, I debated it all the time with Dan Kaplis, who mm-hmm. has been a champion for pro-life movement. He would have been part of that club at Georgetown. Right. And he leads the charge, and I didn't have his passion. It wasn't my top issue because I never thought the row would actually be overturned. Yeah, I never thought that this dog would catch the car. And now that, that they've caught the car, I would use this example. 
IBF facility. There are a bunch of Petri dishes in a cardboard box. A fire breaks out at the facility. I can go rescue an aged senior citizen guard who's overcome by a smoke or a carton full of 12 Petri dishes. Mm -hmm. What should I say? Uh, I, I'd save the guard. That's yeah, good. the live person. <laughs> right. And probably if you had a dog that was copping, I'd probably get the dog too, rather than these zygotes in a Petri dish. I'm sorry. That's just common sense and the love of animals that God put into me. But I don't think it's a close call when it comes to the human being. But now they have one rule in Alabama, and it's going to affect the rest of the country. And hopefully it will deter people from voting for Donald Trump. And it's just like this Colorado ruling, which I thought was right, no offense to Justice Burke and Cotter, that Trump's disqualified. And people's Supreme Court said, well, what if Mississippi does this? And it says that Joe Biden's committing an insurrection, or Texas says that. Well, so now we have to dumb ourselves down to Mississippi or Texas or Alabama, right? Yeah. And our United States are dissolving and I just see Trump causing a lot of problems and a lot of uh, just pinning people against other people. And it has repercussions in the job you're about to embark on. Society is changing, don't you think? I totally agree. And one thing that I, I know we've been seeing since Trump was in office, and hopefully he will never be in office again, but just an increase in hate crimes, an increase in people just hating each other. And that's very concerning to me. It's also very concerning to me with, um, we have so many migrants coming to the community that they are going to see um, an increase in hate crimes against them. I mean, we've already seen incidents of that happening um, in Denver. I'm also concerned that they are going to be trafficked, that they, we're going to see a lot of labor trafficking, that we may see um, human trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, and so, and you know, I think at the bottom of this is that, you know, the, the undertones of a lot of what Trump says is, are rooted in white supremacists, and it's almost like Nazism yes. resurfacing. And that's the way you control people by, you know, putting them down and treating them as less than human and as less than equal, and then you can finally control them. And we have to make sure that doesn't and happen. And with violence. Yes, and, and with promise us. retribution against enemies. Right. And Putin puts down Navalny and Trump won't say anything and his GOP lackeys won't criticize him right. like I will on my social media. Right, because I think they're scared of him. <laughs> right. And, and you know what gives me more sympathy for migrants now? What's that? The prospect that a lot of us will be migrants and yeah. that any of us would flee uh, in the you know, an idiot government gone wild with guns and bent on retribution and right-wing militias. Right. I know that's dystopian. And my God, you might, you're going to be in power for the next eight years, maybe 12. I don't know. Have you thought about this? We've, we just got to stop it before it happens, yes, right? Yes, we do. We do. So people need to get out and vote <laughs> in November. Right. And, uh, but it's, it's, even in the four years since last you ran, things have changed. One thing that I, I'm I'm proud of my vote for Joe Biden. You're a Democrat. Are you proud of the party? And what do you think the future is like for the Democrats? Yeah, I am proud of the party. Um, you know, these have been tough times. COVID was a very tough time. Um, you know, I think we are 
it, it, it's it's tough to see Trump back on the ballot again. I mean, I think nobody saw that coming, just like no one saw him coming coming that he would win the first time around. You know, I think the party's doing I think the party's doing a great job under these circumstances. I think a lot of the criticisms of Trump from the Republicans are completely unfounded. I mean, he's he's three years Biden's three years older than Trump. Right. I mean, a lot of the criticisms of Biden are unfounded. He's been yeah. a good leader. He's good been a good coach. leader. He's but been... obviously, it would be great if he was younger. But yeah. I wish I was six eleven. Maybe I would have had a little chance in the NBA. <laughs> Stuff happens. But right. I'm looking at you. And again, thanks for being here. Because again, a person-to-person experience is a lot different. But I'm going to say I knew you when. I see the potential for you to go on to great office. Do you want? You said you like public service. I saw Bill Ritter go from beating me, and he said I toughened him up, to winning every race he had, including for governor. It can be done. Uh, how deep is your commitment? You know, I, I do have a commitment to public service, but I I actually like practicing law. I like mentoring attorneys. I like talking to victims. I like being out in the community. I like trying cases. I don't see my... I mean, I really don't have any interest in being in Congress or being in the U.S. Senate. I really like being a lawyer. And I got a lot of work to do in the 18th Judicial District. And it's, you know, it's not going to get done in two years or four years or maybe we got two term limits. So I've only got eight at the most. So but um, I got a lot of work to do and I'm going to be focused on um, on that office. And my buddy Ron Fields is running my client. I've been involved with that family since their tragedy in the Rappahoe County DA's office. They called me right after so I remember that situation. I knew the late Jim Peters was mm-hmm. honored to be at his funeral. I mean, so many people were there. I just thought the world of him. And uh, Rappo County is really an important part of Colorado. What about the physical infrastructure? Is that going to work for the next eight years? or I th- It's going to be a challenge. So there's a lot of just, I won't bore you with all the details, but there's a lot of logistical things going on with the split because- Right, I um, Yeah, with, you know, how many people are going to be in what office and, you know, what are the benefits going to be and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I'm obviously not in the office right now, so I don't have a, a handle on that. But, I mean, I do understand the physical office itself seems like they're bursting at the seams for space. Um, so we're going to need, that's something that's going to be needed be looked at, uh, but we'll just kind of need to see where that goes. Wait, how is this going to work? So you and Brockler get elected. It looks like he doesn't have serious opposition, and he's been working the Republicans. Oh, my God, has he? And like you, he doesn't have much opposition, but you have none. But then you have a whole office that's worked for Brockler, Kellner, and now you're the boss. Is it going to be like LeBron and Giannis in basketball where you get a draft choice, you get first pick, I get the next two, and then we go for, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think it's going to be up, a lot up to the individual deputy district attorneys. There's a lot of great prosecutors in that office. I've been meeting with them. Anyone who's asked to meet with me, I've, I've sat down and had coffee with them so they can get to know me. So I think a lot of it's going to depend which office they are they going to apply for. Are they going to apply for both? And then, you know, we'll take it from so there. So it's a player's league. Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, it's it's actually really a tough time to be hiring prosecutors right now. Um, a lot of people don't want to be prosecutors anymore. Um, it's, so it's it's been a challenge. I think all the metro offices have been seeing that. Um, really? Yeah. 
Um, we have why? That... Why? Because of the lack of the human experience. I think part of that. Um, I think you know, post COVID, a lot of people want to be more remote work, and that's not really that feasible for a district attorney's office. Wasn't obviously. that the best part of the DA's office camaraderie? Yes, the fellowship. I'm sure you felt that in the U.S. Attorney's office, which yes. was never as cool as the Denver DA's <laughs> office, by the way. But I might disagree with you. All right, that. well maybe, but I know you guys had camaraderie because you had enough. Denver DA alums to make that happen for you. Right. But even in your smaller offices, there is. There is. You root for each other in trial. You help each other. It's like a team. And you go out, you celebrate because those are the few people you can talk to and strategize. And and I'm afraid that's missing in so much of the practice of law. Yeah, I would agree with that. I And I don't know what the challenge actually is, but I think we are we are seeing fewer... We definitely applications are down, and every DA I talk to in the metro area and, frankly, in the rural areas, you know, where they used to get, you know, a couple hundred applications per spot, they're getting a handful, um, literally. And so it's especially for experienced uh, prosecutors, but it just, I, you know, I worry that the art of trying cases has gone away and it's not, it's going away and it's not as valued, I think, by people. So that's, that's one of the best things about being a deputy DA is you get to go to, to trial right. a lot. And that's, um, I just feel like that's a skill set that's not as valued as much anymore. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. I think that, you know, we saw such exposure of horrendous racial inequities, particularly during COVID, that I think a lot of people coming out of law school you know, that are maybe a Democrat like me or more liberal minded or like, I don't want to be part of uh, being a prosecutor. Whereas my response, if someone says that to me, I said, as a prosecutor, you have the power. Like, look at the difference you can make in someone's life. Um, you can you can stand up for the victims, but you can also, you know, decide if someone needs to go to diversion rather than go to court and go to jail. Or, you know, you can right. connect them with resources. You can make sure that they get a, a just sentence that addresses whatever needs they have. Like, there's so much um, power in being a prosecutor, and it needs to be very carefully amended out. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely been an issue um, in all the metro area offices. And I, I think it's a nationwide issue, to be honest, about trying to hire prosecutors. I think we've changed it here. If I was like, I'm talking like a valley girl because I'm uh, excited and I'm thinking if I was 25 coming out of law school, what a great opportunity to work in Arapahoe County DA's office. You've got so many real important things to do. Sure, there are challenges, but in the end, the job is to do justice. Who gets a job like that? And if justice means you dismiss, that's right. If I have a reasonable doubt, then I can't argue it to a jury. Otherwise, I'm not going to do that. So convince me. That's why I like to listen to defense attorneys. Every once in a while, they would convince me. Right. Hey, I do have a reasonable doubt. Your right. client can go. And, you know, after a while, when you have seniority like you do, you get, you separate the wheat from the chap. And I just think you're going to do a great job in these interesting times. I feel like I've gotten to know you so much better. What's 
Well, do you even practice elevator pitches or campaign speeches with nobody running against you? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I practice them, but I, I'm out there still talking to folks, um, talking about what I want to do. And, you know, the, again, the most important job to me is community safety. But we also need to look at ways that we're going to prevent crime rather than just, um, you know, we're not going to prosecute our way into solely prosecute our way into a safer community. Again, we need to prosecute violent offenders. We need to prosecute offenders who are using guns to commit violence. But let's look at people who have just lost their way and ended up in the criminal justice system. You know, that's lots of times the first contact that someone like with a severe mental illness has with the government is through the criminal justice system. What can we do to treat them? Because having them sit in jail for months waiting for their trial, I mean, that's not going to help them. If we have someone who, you know, needs help finding a job, what can we do to help them find a job so that they can support their families, so that they're not shoplifting, you know, and we really need to, to find out, um, you know, how to prevent crime. And, you know, I think we probably talked about uh, last time, but I actually, the first time I went up to the 5th Judicial District, I set up a diversion program. I was hired by Bruce Brown to set up and run an adult diversion program because they didn't have one at the time. And those programs are hugely successful um, because, you know, the the offenders have to work really hard. They have to pay full restitution. They might have to send an apology note to the victim. They have to go to treatment. They have to do all the things. But then it really helps them at the end of the day. America is a second chance country. Right. And those, those programs are about 90% successful. The recidivism rate right. is really low. Whereas we send someone to the Department of Corrections... The recidivism rates around 50% right now. And guess That's what? That's really poor. And then you have a bunch of guys with 12-page rap sheets. You go, oh, my God, there's that. Right. And then hopefully you can give that to some prosecutors who are going to kick ass. Right, yes. I mean, you have to have the carrot and the stick and everything in between. It's a big job. I mm. I really think you're going to do great at it. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, it's important to all of us, Arapahoe County. Yeah. Colorado. Yep. Thank you, Amy. Good luck. Thanks. I appreciate it. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but... You get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs, and so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs, and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you, and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, 
and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. And hey, that was a great interview with Amy Patton, if I say so myself. I think she's going places, not just a couple of terms as Arapahoe County DA, but she's got skills that may make her a governor someday. Arapahoe County is a major part of the United States because it's a bellwether. Located in Colorado, Nikki Haley's coming to Colorado, and I got excited about her this week. I got excited about Joe Biden before that, but I want you to hear from Nikki Haley. First of all, she was clever. She decided, hey, I'm going to have Fox News cover my speech. She put out a press release saying, big statement on her campaign. Everybody teased she may drop out. Let's see what she's doing. She's going to endorse Trump kiss his ring. Instead, she came on and said, you can kiss my ass. And they had to cover it. And that was beautiful. And she held forth for about 20 minutes And I want you to hear that right now. It's another great day in South Carolina, and we're hoping for an even better day on Saturday. Early voting is underway. I have a quick reminder to all South Carolinians. In a general election, you're given a choice. In a primary, you make your choice. Make sure you make the right choice. Make your voices heard today, tomorrow, and on Saturday. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. Far from it and I'm here to tell you why. I'm running for president because we have a country to save. Since the start of my campaign, I've been focused on the real issues our country faces, the ones that determine whether America will thrive or spiral out. I'm talking about the millions of students who don't know how to read or do basic math, the families who can't afford groceries, much less a first home, the total lawlessness on our southern border. I'm talking about the murders in our cities, the fentanyl on our streets, the children who've been killed in their mom's car by stray bullets. 
And I'm talking about the American weakness that led to wars in Europe and the Middle East and the urgent need to restore our strength before war spreads and draws America further in. These are the challenges I'm here to tackle. But instead of focusing on how to make America stronger tomorrow, some people want to know if I'm going to cave today. We've all heard the calls for me to drop out. We all know where they're coming from. The political elite, the party bosses, the cheerleaders in the commentator world. The argument is familiar. They say I haven't won a state, that my path to victory is slim. They point to the primary polls and say I'm only delaying the inevitable. Why keep fighting when the battle was apparently over after Iowa? Look, I get it. In politics, the herd mentality is enormously strong. A lot of Republican politicians have surrendered to it. The pressure on them was way too much. They didn't want to be left out of the club. Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well, I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud. I feel no need to kiss the ring. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not... I'm not looking for anything from him. My own political future is of zero concern. So I hear what the political class says, but I hear from the American people too. I've heard from a retired army medic who looked evil in the eye. When he says we're headed toward disaster, that American lives are on the line, he knows what he's talking about. He knows we can't afford more of the same. That's why he told me to give him hell. I, I've heard from a mom who promised to email me every day, and she does. She just wants a return to normalcy. She wants me to keep running for the sake of her four-year-old son. She hopes he'll see the, quote, America she grew up in. An America that's strong and proud and united in purpose. And I've heard from a high school student who just last week came to hear me speak. She asked me to sign a note to her teacher explaining her absence. <laughs> After growing up amid the chaos and anger of the last few years, she finally has hope that America will make it if we make the right choice. I'm constantly hearing from Americans like these, hundreds a day, thousands a week, and hundreds of thousands since I declared my candidacy. They see the same polls as me, but more importantly, they have the same belief as me. They believe in America. They believe America can do so much better, that we must do better. And they know when the country's future is on the line, you don't drop out.
You keep fighting. In fact, you fight harder than ever. That's why I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. I'm campaigning every day until the last person votes because I believe in a better America and a brighter future for our kids. Nothing good in life comes easy. I'm willing to take the cuts, the bruises, and the name calling because the only way you get to the blessing is by going through the pain. Dropping out would be the easy route. I've never taken the easy route. I've been the underdog in every race I've ever run. I've always been David taking on Goliath. And like David, I'm not just fighting someone bigger than me. I'm fighting for something bigger than myself. I'm used to people questioning my intentions, so I'll make a few things clear. Some people used to say I was running because I really wanted to be vice president. <laughs> I think I've pretty well settled that question. <laughs> Other people say I'm trying to set up a future presidential run. How does that even work? If I was running for a bogus reason, I would have dropped out a long time ago. The rest of the fellas already did that. They have their own plans. I don't judge them but I'm still here. I'm fighting for what I know is right, and I don't care what the party leaders and political elites want. I'll keep fighting until the American people close the door. That day is not today, and it won't be on Saturday, not by a long shot. The presidential primaries have barely begun. Just three states have voted. Three. That's it. After this weekend, we'll be at four. That's not a lot. In the 10 days after South Carolina, another 21 states and territories will vote. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. We don't anoint kings in this country. We have elections. And Donald Trump, of all people, should know we don't rig elections. Yeah. <laughs> Americans of every belief and background are tired of our national mess. They don't want more chaos and craziness. They worry about a national collapse. If I weren't in the race, we'd be reading the exact same storyline every day until November 5th. There would be widespread reports of Americans suffering from a bad case of Biden-Trump fatigue. And it would be true. A stunning 70% of the country doesn't want a Biden-Trump rematch. 
the majority of Americans don't just dislike one candidate, they dislike both. As a country, we've never seen such dissatisfaction with the leading candidates. We've never had so many Americans mired in pessimism and division. We still have a chance to restore their faith. I will fight as long as that chance exists. Now I know what Donald Trump is saying. He wants an election with no opponent. But that's not what the voters are saying. Despite being a de facto incumbent, Donald Trump lost 49% of the vote in Iowa. In New Hampshire, Trump lost 46% of the vote. That's not good. We're talking about almost half of our voters. What does it say about an incumbent who's losing nearly half of his party? It spells disaster in November. We shouldn't silence those voters like Trump wants. They have the right to keep speaking out. Trump sees this. That's why he and his allies are now trying a different tack. They're saying, I'm helping Joe Biden by staying in. Let's unpack that for a second. First things first, Joe Biden is doing more damage to himself than any Republican ever could. Every time he opens his mouth, he sounds like his mind is closing up shop. The Democrats are getting weaker by holding a coronation for Biden. Republicans will get stronger through a vigorous competition. We have plenty of time to hash this out. If the race ended today, we would have the longest general election in history. There are still eight and a half months before Election Day. Do we really want to spend every day from now until November watching America's mo two most disliked politicians duke it out? No sane person wants that. But there's another reason Trump is wrong. At the end of the day, the only candidate who's helping Joe Biden is Donald Trump. Because Trump is the only Republican Biden can beat. The Democrats know it. They don't even try and conceal it. They don't even try to conceal the glee at the prospect of running against Trump. They want to win. So they want the guy they've already beaten time and again. Trump knows it too but he won't admit it. True to form, he's taking out his anger on others. He's getting meaner and more offensive by the day. He's trying to bully me and anyone who supports me. He says they'll be barred from MAGA permanently. That's not the way you win elections. Well, I've dealt with bullies my entire life. They don't intimidate me. They only motivate me further. And I've never met a bully I couldn't take on. There are those who will try and paint me as never Trump. That's not who I am. Never have been. I supported Trump in 2016 and in 2020. I was proud to serve America in his cabinet. 
My purpose has never been to stop Trump at all costs. Like most Americans, I have a handful of serious concerns about the former president. But I have countless serious concerns about the current president. Joe Biden has turned our country upside down. It's not normal for millions of migrants to illegally cross our border without being stopped. It's not normal for our schools to be more focused on gender pronouns than reading and math. It's not normal to have skyrocketing prices and soaring crime. And it's not normal to have wars raging in Europe and the Middle East. All of that is on Joe Biden. But he's not the only one who's replaced normalcy with chaos. Donald Trump has done that too. It's not normal to insult our military heroes and veterans. It's not normal to spend $50 million in campaign contributions on personal court cases. It's not normal to threaten people who back your opponent. And it's not normal to call on Russia to invade NATO countries. Donald Trump has done all of that and more in just the past month. Look, I've said it many times. I think Donald Trump was the right president at the right time. But times change, and so has Trump. He's gotten more unstable and unhinged. He spends more time in courtrooms than he does on the campaign trail. He refuses to debate. He's completely distracted. And everything is about him. He's so obsessed with his own demons from the past, he can't focus on delivering the future Americans deserve. We have two hugely flawed candidates in Biden and Trump. Americans know it. They've been saying it for years. And we all know why. Trump and Biden are two old men who are only getting older. Nearly 60% of Americans say Trump and Biden are both too old to be president. Because they are. We've all seen them fumble their words and get confused about world leaders. That's not who you want in the Oval Office when Russia launches a nuclear weapon at our satellites or China shuts down our electricity grid. We're talking about the most demanding job in human history. You don't give it to someone who's at risk of dementia. You give it to someone who's disciplined, someone who can work day and night for eight straight years. No vendettas, no drama, just results. Even if Trump and Biden weren't too old, and again they are, Americans still oppose them because they know what they'll do. They've already done tremendous damage, and they're just getting started. Biden has crippled families with years of inflation. He's put welfare over work and doled out more corporate welfare than any president ever. Meanwhile, Trump added more to the national debt than any president in history. And it wasn't because of COVID, no matter how many times he tries that excuse. 
Now he wants to put a 10% tax hike on every single American. Just like Biden, Trump will devastate families and destroy good paying jobs. We need to shift our economy into overdrive, not reverse. Most importantly, we need a president who protects America. Biden has failed this basic duty. As commander in chief, he tried to cut the military. He's made us weaker while our enemies get stronger. He withdrew from Afghanistan in a way that encouraged our enemies to do whatever they want. Three years later, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Hamas has murdered Israeli women and children in their beds. China is launching unprecedented cyber attacks on American infrastructure. Iran is killing American soldiers. At the same time, Donald Trump has plenty of his own problems on national security. He's all but said he's going to abandon Ukraine. That's a massive gift to Vladimir Putin. Now Trump is inviting Putin to invade NATO countries. Those are the same countries that stood with us after September 11th. Of course we should ask them to pay more. We should demand it. But abandoning them will only bring more war. Putin is already planning his next move. He's eyeing our allies in the Baltics. A Russian attack would put America at war. Russia isn't the only country that smells blood in the water. When the dictators in Iran, North Korea, and communist China see America step back, they rush into the breach. They think America's time has passed, and their time has come. The truth is, Americans already know what Joe Biden and Donald Trump will do, but we're just as concerned with who they are. They're dividers at a time when America desperately, urgently needs a uniter. All they do is turn us against each other. Trump calls his fellow Americans vermin. Biden calls his fellow Americans fascist. Trump and Biden don't just demand that people pick sides. They demand that their followers hate the other side. Look where that's gotten us. Congress is too divided and broken to do its job. Families won't even talk to each other at the dinner table. We're separating into opposing camps that view each other as un-American, if not downright evil. These are dangerous times. The most important thing we can do is regain our focus and shared sense of purpose. The worst thing we can do is become even more distracted and divided. The reason I'm running, the reason I continue to run, is to remind everyone what it means to be an American. I'm the proud daughter of legal immigrants. I grew up as a brown girl in a black and white world. I saw our state move beyond hatred and elect the first female minority governor in American history as a conservative Republican. And in just a few days, my parents are going to cast their vote for their daughter for President of the United States.
I've thought this week about what that means to them, but I know what it says about our country. In the America I know and love, we disagree strongly, but we do it without hating each other and still have the same shared national purpose. In the America I know and love, we respect freedom, the rule of law. We refuse to use the awesome power of big government to punish those we dislike. And we recognize that America has done more good for more people than any country in the world. It's not America first to withdraw from the world. It's not America first to praise dictators who want to kill Americans. It's not America first to bankrupt Social Security by doing nothing to fix it. And in fact, it's America last to keep losing one election after another to the socialist left. That's what we get with Donald Trump. I'm running for president to restore a country that's strong and proud. That is why I will stay in the race after South Carolina votes. And to my beloved fellow South Carolinians, I ask that you stand with me. Stand with your family, friends, and neighbors. See the America I see. And remember that we can still unite and move forward together, not with anger, not with fear, but with faith and hope like we've done before. Let's finally leave the past behind and let's forge a new American future. This vision has guided every generation. It summoned me to serve as governor of this great state and as ambassador for the greatest country in the world. And that same vision called my husband to serve in the uniform of the United States. He's a major in the South Carolina Army National Guard. As I prepare for what lies ahead, Michael is at the forefront of my mind. I wish Michael was here today, and I wish our children, and I could see him tonight, but we can't. He's serving on the other side of the world, where conflict is the norm, where terrorists hide among the innocent, where Iran's terrorist proxies are now attacking American troops. This is Michael's second deployment. It was hard for us to say goodbye to him the first time when he deployed to Afghanistan. It was even harder last summer when he deployed to Africa. As every military family knows, when a loved one deploys, we start the year-long prayer. It's a prayer for their safety more than anything else, but it's also a prayer of gratitude. The kids and I know why Michael went. He stepped up to keep us safe. And not just us. He stepped up to defend our nation's freedom and our way of life. Michael is fighting for the country he loves 
so are all of his brothers and sisters in arms wherever they're stationed in this dangerous world. They have made their stand because America is worth fighting and even dying for. Now I will continue to make my stand because America is worth living for. Thank you. God bless you. God bless South Carolina and God bless America. And now, let me give you the great words of Joe Biden. I put this out on my Twitter, X, whatever you want to call Elon Musk's machine. He's a horrible guy, but we are not surrendering that battle space. And one day in the middle of the day, after the Senate came through with an aid package for Ukraine, bipartisan, 22 Republicans, Joe Biden gave a hell of a speech. And he said, hey, House, here's the bill. Ukraine needs it. The West needs it. It's like World War II. History is watching you. And it was a beautiful speech. And I tweeted, and it got like 300,000 views because I said it was like Joe Biden was 45 again. And listen to him here. Hear this flawless delivery of a powerful speech that did not get enough attention but it will on my show. Listen to Joe and know that he's still got what it takes, even if nobody talks about it, except you and me. Thanks a lot for listening. Here's our President Joe Biden at his finest. Of course, what did the House do on the command of Donald Trump after this great speech? The next day, they walked away. They went on a two-week vacation, and people are dying in Ukraine because of that. No funding for Israel, too. They did the same thing with the damn border fix. We see what's going on. And Nikki Haley called it out. And she called out Putin, too. But look at Joe Biden. He's calling out Trump and Putin. And it's increasingly clear that Putin is behind Trump and vice versa. Although I think Putin is the alpha dog. Listen to Joe Biden at his finest and see if you don't agree with me. He sounds about 45 years old. This is a great speech. Earlier this morning, the United States Senate, as you all know, voted overwhelmingly by a margin of 70 to 29 to move forward the bipartisan national security bill. Now, now it moves to the House. And I urge Speaker Johnson to bring it to the floor immediately, immediately. There's no question that if the Senate bill was put on the floor in the House of Representatives, it would pass. It would pass. And the Speaker knows that. So I call on the Speaker to let the full House speak its mind and not allow a minority of most extreme voices in the House to block this bill even from being voted on, even from being voted on. This is a critical act for the House to move. It needs to move. The bill provides urgent funding for Ukraine so it can keep defending itself against Putin's vicious, vicious onslaught. We've all seen the terrible stories in recent weeks. Ukrainian soldiers out of artillery shells, Ukrainian units rationing rounds of ammunition to defend themselves, Ukrainian families worried that the next Russian strike will permanently plunge them into darkness or worse. This bipartisan bill sends a clear message to Ukrainians and to our partners 
and to our allies around the world, America can be trusted. America can be relied upon. And America stands up for freedom. We stand strong for our allies. We never bow down to anyone, and certainly not to Vladimir Putin. So let's get on with this. Remember, the United States pulled together a coalition of nearly 50 nations to support Ukraine. We unified NATO, expanded it. We can't walk away now. That's what Putin's betting on. He's, he just flatly said that. Supporting this bill is standing up to Putin. Opposing it is playing into Putin's hands. As I've said before, the stakes in this fight extend far beyond Ukraine. If we don't stop Putin's appetite for power and control in Ukraine, he won't limit himself just to Ukraine. And the cost for America and our allies and partners are going to rise. For Republicans in Congress who think they can oppose funding for Ukraine and not be held accountable, history is watching. History is watching. History is watching. Failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will never be forgotten. I want to be clear about something, because I know it's important to the American people. While this bill sends military equipment to Ukraine, it spends the money right here in the United States of America places like Arizona, where the Patriot missiles are built, in Alabama, where the Javelin missiles are built, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Texas, where artillery shells are made. And the way it works is we supply Ukraine with military equipment from our stockpiles, and then we spend our money replenishing those stockpiles so our military has access to them. Stockpiles that are made right here in America by American workers. That not only supports American jobs and American communities, it allows us to invest in maintaining and strengthening our own defense manufacturing capacity. Look, this bill meets our national security priorities in the Middle East as well and includes greater support for our troops serving in the region, who continue to defend against mil militia attacks backed by Iran. It also provides Israel with the, what it needs to protect its people against a terrorist group like Hamas and Hezbollah and others. And it will provide life-saving humanitarian aid to the Palestinian people who desperately need food, water, and shelter. They need help. And finally, this bill includes critical funding for our national security priorities in Asia. Because even as we focus on the conflicts in Gaza and Ukraine, we must not take our eye off our national security challenges in the Pacific. It's the responsibility of a great nation, and we are a great nation that the rest of the world looks to. And I mean that. The rest of the world looks to us. The stakes are already high for American security before this bill was passed in the Senate last night. But in recent days, those stakes have risen. And that's because the former president has sent a dangerous and shockingly, frankly, un-American signal to the world. Just a few days ago, Trump gave an invitation to Putin to invade some of our allies, NATO allies. He said, if an ally didn't spend enough money on defense, he would encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want, end of quote. Can you imagine a former president of the United States saying that? The whole world heard it. The worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. When America gives us word, it means something. When we make a commitment, we keep it. And NATO is a sacred commitment. Donald Trump looks at this as if it's a burden. 
When he looks at NATO, he doesn't see the alliance that protects America and the world. He sees a protection racket. He doesn't understand that NATO is built on a fundamental principles of freedom, security, and national sovereignty. Because for Trump, principles never matter. Everything is transactional. He doesn't understand that the sacred commitment we've given works for us as well. In fact, I would remind Trump and all those who would walk away from NATO, Article 5 has only been invoked once, just once in our NATO history. And it was done to stand with America after we were attacked on 9-11. We should never forget it. You know, our adversaries have long sought to create cracks in the alliance. The greatest hope of all those who wish America harm is for NATO to fall apart. And you can be sure that they all cheered when they heard Donald Trump and heard what he said. I know this. I will not walk away. I can't imagine any other president walking away. For as long as I'm president, if Putin attacks a NATO ally, the United States will defend every inch of NATO territory. Let me close with this. <clears throat> You've heard me say this before. Our nation stands at an inflection point, an inflection point in history, where the decisions we make now are going to determine the course of our future for decades to come. This is one of those moments. And I say to the House members, House Republicans, you got to decide. Are you going to stand up for freedom? Or are you going to side with terror and tyranny? You're going to stand with Ukraine? You're going to stand with Putin? Will we stand with America or with Trump? Republicans and Democrats in the Senate came together to send a message of unity to the world. It's time for the House Republicans to do the same thing to pass this bill immediately, to stand for decency, stand for democracy, to stand up to a so-called leader hell-bent on weakening American security. And I mean it sincerely. History is watching. History is watching. In moments like this, we have to remember who we are. We're the United States of America. The world is looking to us. There's nothing beyond our capacity when we act together. In this case, acting together includes acting with our NATO allies. God bless you all. May God protect our speakers. And I promise I'll come back and answer questions later. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, and I know I did, tell a friend five stars on your favorite podcast platform. And thank you, Amy Patton. And thank you, Dave Gunders, our troubadour. What a song your way to. Check them out, Dave Gunders. Dot com. Have a great week. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. <laughs>